110 on the last day of unleavened bread. And I want to pick it up there and continue. Here he says, the eternal said to my Lord. So this is the father speaking to he who would become the son when he was born on the earth. Sit you at my right hand. Christ obviously is the one designated to do that uh, throughout the scriptures. Until I make your enemies your footstool. So he says, son, sit here beside me until uh, we subdue the earth. Take control, take charge down there. The eternal shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. So the father is going to send the son with power to rule the earth with a rod of iron, and he will rule from Zion. (coughs) Rule you in the midst of your enemies. So when he returns, he will still have enemies, but they will be subdued. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. Interesting comment. When Christ returns to take charge, he will have his bride, his people, very willing to help him. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, uh, that's kind of unclear what that means, but... uh, in the beauty of holiness from the time the sun begins to warm the earth. Christ is the light. He is the one that will come and bring warmth and light to the earth. And that's what the Hebrew expression means, poorly translated into English. You have the dew of your youth. He will come in strength. He will come in enthusiasm and excitement. The dew of youth is something we have and as we get old and weary and tired and... Uh, busted up and sick and whatever, we don't have quite the same energy or enthusiasm perhaps for life that we might have had 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. That changes. But he will come with full excitement and energy to do the job he has to do. The Eternal has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ was the Melchizedek of the Old Testament, and he will be high priest forevermore. And uh, Paul expresses that again, quotes this in the book of Hebrews. Speaking of Christ all the way through, I don't know why people get so confused about who Melchizedek is. I think the scripture makes it very clear the whole subject of Hebrews is Christ and him being the priest and our high priest. And he was the Melchizedek of the Old Testament. So he says in the future, the same priesthood you had will be the same one you have in the future. The eternal at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. So again, this is a, an end time prophecy. When Christ will come and strike the heart of kings. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. All right, read Daniel, read Revelation, read the end time prophecies, and that's what they talk about. How he will come, he'll send the seven last plagues, and many, many people will die. He shall wound the heads over... Great countries, or many countries, depending on how it's translated. 
Well, he will take charge, and the heads of the countries will be wounded in the head, or killed or put out of commission, and he will take charge, <clears throat> and we shall reign with him on the earth during that time. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. That's kind of an enigmatic expression. What does that mean? Uh, drinking of the brook in the way, that's water. Uh, if you're a warrior, you need strength. And drinking from the brook is something that gives you strength. So he will be safe in what he is doing. He doesn't have to worry. If he comes to the brook, using the metaphor, he can drink without fear of being killed or anything else happening to him because he will be in power. Uh, he is the water, he is the word, and he will see this thing through. Might be another thought here. Uh, he says he is going to kill many people, and he will wound the leaders. So what his word is, what is written here, will truly come to pass. The words he says will be utilized. He will drink of the brook. These things will happen. Then chapter 111, he says, Praise you the Eternal. That is a constant theme through here. I will praise the Eternal with my whole heart. Well, here's your example from the psalmist. We praise God with our whole heart, not half-heartedly. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So he expects us as individuals to do as he does, and that is worship God with our whole heart here amongst our brethren. That is something we need to be doing. That leads to a positive attitude. Not to negativity, but to a positive approach. If we find ourselves getting in a negative approach, then we're not doing what this verse says. The works of the eternal are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. We have committed ourselves to serve God, and we are to seek out the things that he has done, to seek out what he is going to do. And we have pleasure in the things of God, and his greatness, his power, his love, what he's going to do for mankind. We don't take it for granted. We seek it out. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. This is quite different from what we were reading a few chapters back, isn't it? It's all pretty much uplifting and positive about what God can do and how we need to follow right in along with him. He has given food to them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. Now, if God is going to feed us in these times, we need to be the ones who fear God, the ones who serve God. And those are the ones he is going to feed the meat or the food. And we find that there is a famine of the word in the end time, which we're in, and not many people are being fed. As a result, they're starving to death spiritually. If we fear him, he says he'll feed us and be mindful, or he will ever be mindful of his covenant. 
He's promised us life and blessing, and we serve Him and fear Him, then we're going to have life and blessing. He has showed His people the power of His works, that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. Now, He has shown those things in the past, but He's about to show them again in great power and in mercy, and we will be given the heritage of the heathen. I was in Zion Park yesterday, and something struck me that I had never really thought of before. When you get to that first stop going up uh, the canyon there, the Court of the Patriarchs, uh, you, you have the three mountains there they call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the front of Jacob, you can just barely see Jacob, the, the white mountain behind as the, bus, or as the tape on the bus shows. You can't see it very well because you have Moroni, uh, in front of it. And I'd always thought, well, everything here basically is named after God in this park, but Moroni always stuck out at me. Why do we have a mountain named after the demon that gave Joseph Smith his dreams? And when they said that, Jacob is hidden behind Moroni, the light bulb went off. The Mormons are between true Jacob and their God. They're in the way. If we're to build the temple of God in the true Jerusalem and the promised land of God, the Mormons are going to have to go away. They are hiding the true Jacob and the true land of Jacob. Now it makes sense to me of why God would have allowed that to be named that and put in that particular location. He doesn't obscure Abraham or Isaac. Those two hills are clear. But he obscures Jacob. And we are the children of Jacob, the Israelites brought back to this land. Now, maybe that's just me, but there are so many, many, many of these things that over time come into focus. Maybe they're just names of hills that somebody put there, but I don't think so. I think God caused his name to be placed where he wanted it, just like he caused the Jebusites to put the correct name on Jerusalem. He can do those things. He has infinite power. So he will give us the heritage of the heathen. That's what sparked the thought. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. Now, this is an end-time prophecy. If you want another proof, the commandments are still in effect. It's an end-time prophecy about Christ coming back and the things he's going to be doing. And it mentions his commandments. They're still in effect. They haven't gone away. And speaking of the end-time, they're still in the context. No, this isn't New Testament, but it's talking about the end of the New Testament the last part of the new covenant on this earth before Christ returns. And he's talking about the commandments being sure. They don't diminish. They don't go away. They'll always be there. They stand fast forever and ever. Not done away. And are done in truth and uprightness. We keep God's commandments. Truth and uprightness will follow. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded this, his covenant forever. And he sent Christ, whom he's talking about in chapter 110, to redeem us 
from this earth, to redeem us from the dead, to redeem us from sin, to forgive us. We've just gone through Passover and rehearsed His forgiveness. I wonder if we are willing to forgive one another. How much like God are we? Or do we hold grudges and thoughts and sins and bad attitudes about others? God sent redemption. Holy and reverent is His name. He's far and away above us. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all they that do His commandments, His praise endures forever. So, following God's way is going to give us understanding. It will impart wisdom. It will cause us to do well. Let's go to 112 then. We're moving right along. Praise ye the Eternal. Again. Blessed is the man that fears the Eternal, that delights greatly in his commandments. We'll receive blessing for keeping God's commandments. That's all the way through. His seed shall be mighty upon earth. We only have a few people on the end, in the end time here who are willing to keep God's commandments. And it says their seed will be mighty on the earth. Commandment keepers. Those who come from commandment keepers and follow their ways. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. We go through times of ups and downs with uh, our humanness. But overall, if we serve God and obey Him, good things will happen. Under the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. It's good to read these things about God to be reminded of how He is. Because we're to be like He is. We're to act like Him, think like Him, react like Him, be like Him in every way, follow in His footsteps. He's gracious, full of compassion, and He is righteous. A good man shows favor and lends, has an attitude of wanting to give, to serve, to help, to take care of others' needs wherever possible. That's what God is there for. He wants to take care of any needs He possibly can, if we do not limit Him. He will guide His affairs with discretion. Surely He shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance. It says the wicked will be forgotten, but by contrast, the righteous will be remembered forevermore. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the eternal. So bad news comes, things are said, whatever it might be. He doesn't fear. The righteous are bold as a lion. They don't worry because they know that everything will turn out okay anyway, in spite of whatever people do and say. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. We serve God. All our enemies eventually are going to go away. And God will deal with our enemies. He has dispersed. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. Reward of serving God. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. 
The desire of the wicked shall perish. Now, this is repeated in the New Testament. There's a great gulf between the righteous and the wicked, and the wicked uh, will gnash the teeth. Christ said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and some will go into the lake of fire. won't be a great number because God is more competent, more capable than that, and he has a way of saving people in spite of themselves. Now to one thirteen, opens again, praise you the Lord, because all of these give praise to God as the opening statement, and then they talk about the wonderful things that he does, and the wonder that he is, his character, his love, his kindness, his compassion, his qualities, in other words. <coughs> praise, O you servants of the Eternal, praise the name of the Eternal. If we spend a lot of time praising God's name, we don't have much time left to besmirch each other's, do we? Wouldn't that solve a lot of our problems? If we spend our time praising God instead of undercutting and backbiting each other, wouldn't that help a lot? I would think so. Blessed be the name of the Eternal from this time forth and forevermore. So from the time Christ sets his hand to bless his church and ultimately to bless Israel and to put down the enemies, <clears throat> it'll be from there and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Positive approach to life, positive approach to God, positive approach to each other. Uh, there's no time for naysaying. There's no time for negativity from the beginning to the end of the day. The eternal is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like to the eternal our God who dwells on high? Good question to ask because in this context of talking about how great God is and the things he does and the things he's about to do, he said, who's like that? It brings us back to earth a little bit. Who of us are like God? That's our goal. That's our purpose, to be like him. <clears throat> but who is? <clears throat> who is like God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? <clears throat> this is a recurring theme throughout the Bible. We don't get proud and vain about what we know or who we are or how we're better than someone else or certainly less sinful. But we humble ourselves and look at the things God has done and it makes us feel small. When we go out and look at the grandeur of His creation, it makes us feel small. When we compare ourselves among ourselves... It makes us feel big, because we're bigger than the other lump there. But we're not bigger than God. When we compare ourselves among ourselves, we get vain, egotistical, and proud. When we compare ourselves to God, the problem goes away. We become humble. Now, what does God do? Who is like this? He raises up the poor out of the dirt. If you're 
down on the ground, in the dirt, dirty, God picks you up out of it and lifts the needy out of the dunghill. If you're down in the manure, they put Jeremiah down in the outhouse hole. He was deep in deep doo-doo. And he stayed there for a while. And God pulled him out. How many of us do that for each other? <clears throat> Let's look at human nature for a moment. If you're standing a little bit downhill of the outhouse hole, and somebody smells the outhouse, and you happen to be kind of near it, they figure, that must be you that stinks. And then, whether it's true or not, it might be the outhouse that stinks, but they think it's you. So what do humans do? They'll shove you in the hole. And then if you try to climb out, they'll be with their tongues, with their words, they'll try to keep you shoved in there, won't they? And then they'll tell everybody else about it. Well, I think so-and-so did such-and-such, you know. And the next time it's repeated, so-and-so did do such-and-such. And it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? And that's why we have problems among ourselves, because we accuse one another. Some of the accusations may be true, some of them may not be true. But we don't care. Because if we can hear something that's negative, we will believe it, we will think about it until it becomes bigger and bigger, and then we'll repeat it, and it'll just get bigger and bigger until it's totally out of control. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And when we do the opposite of God, like Satan, we are playing into his hands and we are worshiping Satan the devil, whether we know it or not. Contrast God. He raises people up out of the dirt. He raises people out of the outhouse hole. People do not. Satan does not. Think about it. <clears throat> Who is like the eternal? Who is like Satan? So he lifts them out of the dirt, out of the dust, out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. So God takes you and me, and he says, you're weak, you're base, you're in the dirt, you're the dung of the earth. That's what it says. We're the manure pile. He is able, through his greatness, to raise us up out of it, to clean us off, and to set us with the princes of his people, to rule the earth. What an incredible God that he can take the likes of you and me and make something great out of us. He is so far and beyond human nature and Satan's nature that there simply is no comparison. <clears throat> Verse 9, he makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. I refer you back to 102.13 on that one. Uh, the church is spoken of as a barren woman. That has always been uh, a, a thing of uh, disdain 
in society, especially back then. A lot of people choose not to have children now. But back then, it was looked upon as a curse not to be able to have children. And God likens the church to a barren woman. <clears throat> but he is going to cause her to be a joyful mother of children. Women want to have children, generally. It's God built it into them. For reasons of fertility or whatever people may drum up with, sometimes they keep mothers from being mothers and having children. Now, there is a time, God says, things are going to become so dangerous that children shouldn't be born, and it'll be a real bad time if you have one nursing or still in the oven when it's time to flee to a place of safety. Now, when that happens, I don't know, and when that comes into place, I don't know. But it is only natural to be a joyful mother of children. So God is going to take the church and transform her into that so that she will have children all over the earth. At the beginning, here at the end, he's going to draw a remnant together, and it's going to be such a happy time to have all those children coming to serve God with their mother of the church. And then throughout the world, once Christ is here ruling. Praise you, the Eternal. So, there's the contrast between Satan who wants to destroy mankind and human nature who plays into his hand, where we try to lift ourselves up by putting others down and destroying them and accusing them, and not allowing them to be fruitful, and God who will make us all fruitful. See the contrast between God and us <clears throat> and what we need to do to be like He is instead of the way we are. I hear complaints around all the time. Well, people still talking a lot around here and they're still accusing and they're still backbiting. Maybe that's so. Well, that just shows we need to do some growing. Didn't we just go through Passover? Didn't we just ask God to forgive us of all our sins, all of our faults, all of our weaknesses, and then we still hold feelings, grudges, attitudes toward others? Who do we think we are? How arrogant. How vain. How satanic. How ungodly to take the Passover with an attitude like that and then expect God to bless us as we continue to try to find fault with one another. God help us. God help us. That's all I can say. Psalm 114. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary, and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan was driven back. The mountains skipped like rams, and the little hills like lambs. What ailed you, O you sea, that you fled? You, Jordan, that you were driven back." Nature, the elements, the seas, the rivers, respond to God. How about people? 
What ails you that you were driven back? Aren't you a powerful river? Aren't you mighty? Are you sick that you can't run downhill anymore? Tremble, you earth, at the presence of the Eternal, at the presence of the God of Jacob, which turns the rock into a standing water, the flint into a fountain of waters. There they were, several million people, all murmuring and complaining against Moses and against God because he had parted the Red Sea, destroyed Mitzrayim, killed an empire, brought them through the Red Sea, and all they could do was complain because they didn't have what they needed to both their human and their godly leadership. Isn't it amazing how they came out after all he had done and started grumbling, griping, and murmuring immediately, and he still gave them water? What an amazing God. You know, he sent his son to the earth as a sacrifice for sinners. He didn't send them for the righteous. He says so very, very clearly. And we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet, he's willing to pick us up out of the manure and to let us serve him. Now, are we going to do that with each other or not? Or are we going to rip and tear one another until we tear ourselves apart? I think it's time to repent. Chapter 115, Now unto us, O Eternal, not unto us, but unto your name give glory, for your mercy and for your truth's sake. We aren't anything. It's not our name. It's God's name. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? We've seen that repeated over and over in the Bible now, haven't we? Why would the heathen say, Where is their God? Well, if we neglect God and he doesn't bless us and help us, then the heathen will say, where is their God? You know, they trust in God, let him deliver them. They said that of Christ. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. Come on down, deliver this guy. Didn't happen, did it? He died. Three days later, he was delivered. <clears throat> and you know what he had? He had every sin that you and I have ever committed on his back. No sin of his own, but all the sin of all men that had ever commit, been committed or would ever be committed. And God showed mercy and resurrected him. Wow. This is going to turn out with God's name being glorified. Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever He has pleased. He has that kind of power. Whatever pleases Him, He does. And only good things please Him in the long run. <clears throat> Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. 
Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. So we have all these human metaphors of the five senses that we have. And we worship gods of silver, of gold, materiality, if you will. The things that we have around us take our time and our energy. Try getting a group of 10 or 20 Americans today to go without TV, computer, iPod, cell phone for 24 hours. 24 hours without those things. Man lived 6,000 years without them. You'd have, you'd have some insane people at the end of the 24 hours. We couldn't stand it. Those are the things that take too much of our time and our energy, not God. They become then idols because they come between us and the time we need with God. Did I say all those things were wrong? No. But people get to the point they're obsessed with them, to the point they have to have something there, a screen of some kind, or they go nuts. We've gotten that demented that uh, tied, that addicted, let's say. And we can't put them down. Verse 9, O Israel, trust you in the eternal. He is their help and their shield. All these other things we've become addicted to, whatever they might be, I just named a few. Uh, but this world is addicted to many, many things. They're not going to help us. When this thing all comes down. They're going to help us a bit. He is our help and our shield. Put him first. O house of Aaron, trust in the eternal. He is their help and their shield. Repeats it. He that fears the eternal, trust in the eternal. He is their help and their shield. No matter what category, keep this in mind. God is the one who is going to help us through all these things. Nothing that man can do will be of any value. The Eternal has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. Positive statement. This is going to happen. He'll put us through whatever He has to put us through to get us in a blessed, or a, a position that can be blessed. Put it that way. He will bless them that fear the Eternal, both small and great. doesn't matter what we are on this earth. Noble, ignoble. Uh, smart, dumb, whatever. If we serve God, He's going to bless us, small and great. The Eternal shall increase you more and more, you and your children. We have a path of blessing ahead of us, He says. You are blessed of the Eternal, which made heaven and earth. Wow. The God that made all this universe is the one that will be our benefactor, our sugar daddy, the one who blesses us, whatever analogy you want to use, all blessing derives from God. The heaven, even the heavens, are the eternals, but the earth has He given to the children of men. He hasn't given us any rain, any power over the universe. We've stuck our nose out to the moon, maybe. Uh, that's about it. Maybe a shot or two to Mars or whatever, but we certainly don't have any domain out there or any dominion out there. It's all we can do to get out there and return alive if some of these things occur. 
He's given us the earth. That's what we are, earthy. Put on the earth and we will die. The dead praise not the eternal, neither any that go down into silence. Praise Him while we're alive. That's what we need to do, is have our mind on God because He's the source of all blessing. But we will bless the eternal from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the eternal. I'm going to stop there for today.